Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi. Hey, welcome, welcome to the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G. I'm so excited to bring you this episode. First of all, thank you guys so much for listening out there, getting the word out about our podcast. Second of all, we're going to keep bringing it to you. The interview that I have for you today, I interviewed Alita Glass. She's a local New Orleans storyteller. She's been in The Moth. She's won The Moth. She's done The Moth Grand Slam. She's a stand-up comedian. She's done stand-up for the mayor of Cambridge. Like She has done some shit, and we're so happy to have her share her story with us so let's get to it after the interview there's going to be a clip of alita from the storytelling show greetings from queer mountain so definitely stick around for that it's all amazing let's get to it so how are you doing alita doing pretty good just recovering a little bit from the holidays alita uh, brought over some beer that she won called beer ito and it just says beer plus Edo, and I don't know what Edo is, but I'm I, super excited. I think it's a play on burrito. But what is it? I have no is idea. Is it a burrito beer? I don't know. That's why I was regifting to you. <laughs> it seemed like something you should be drinking. Let's talk about you. Where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up mostly across the lake from New Orleans when uh, when it was a small town, and then I stayed in the city mostly with my grandparents. They had a neighbor named Scully, who in retrospect now I realize was a butch dyke who used to come hang out with me in the playground. There's all those like weird childhood things you remember once you get older. Yeah, all those things that click for you where you're like, wait exactly. a minute, <laughs> wait a second here. <laughs> all right, so you, uh, where'd you go to high school? Um, I didn't finish high school, but I went to high school across the lake at Salmon. I, I dropped out in my, my junior year because uh, it just wasn't, there wasn't much to learn. And um, not that anybody even remembers this, but there used to be a course called Shorthand and uh, they were so desperate for courses that they actually put me in shorthand, which I never even asked for, and it was standing room only. So I don't know. I think they gave me shorthand and three PEs or something, and I was just like, I got to get out of here. Plus, I grew up on one side of town, which something I think uh, you can find all over America. You just look for where the trade school is, and that's the side of town where people aren't really being schooled to go to college. They're being schooled to go to trade school yeah so in our trade school had kind of the you know automotive refrigeration and welding for boys and the um weird things like the secretarial type courses for women and then for some reason horticulture class i don't know why that was just always kind of funny to me and we didn't have that but i know we had auto and some (laughs) girls took auto 
uh, to, to meet boys. I wanted to take it because I thought it'd be a good idea to learn about cars. But uh, some people in my life were like, no, that's for boys. And I ended up not taking it. And now I really wish I did because I feel like I've been screwed over by enough mechanics that right. I'm like, hey, maybe if I knew something about this car. Yeah, one time I tried to like Google information about my car so I could bring it there and be like, look, I know stuff, so you're not going to rip me off. But you could tell I had just Googled something five minutes before <laughs> I showed up, and I think that made it even worse for myself. So you left school junior year. Just kind of, I don't know, worked mostly in restaurants for years. Probably why I still have trouble cooking for one or five. So yeah, I just I did that for a while, and uh, then I actually fell into working with computers. I uh, took a job as a check sorter in this company that serviced six local banks. I was just a check sorter, but then the guy who was the computer operator got mad in the middle of the night and walked out, and so I just sat down at this thing that you know now would look to somebody younger than me as a like a star like like uh like the panel for the Star Trek Enterprise. <laughs> there were like a thousand little switches and buttons and gadgets you moved. Um and I just sat down and I called these guys at the other uh center who I think just got high all the time and Leander just like talked me through the whole thing and so then I got that job and then from that job I just worked in computers a lot. Then I got into doing some youth ministry on the side, you know, like all gay people did back then. You went to church for a while to maybe like either hide the gay or make it go away. But Were you out at this time? No. Okay. no. Did you know though? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When did yeah. you, like what age do you feel like you really knew or, oh, or you said to yourself? Yeah, I think I knew forever, but I couldn't figure out how, how to live like that. There were no role models. There was no... It seemed to me back then, it was kind of like you, there were two ways to be. Either you were straight or you were kind of a freak gay person. Because that's the only role models we saw were the freak people. And they were always the bad people in the movies. Yeah, so anyway, I was doing youth ministry. All these ministers were gay. I think most of them knew it. Some people were very out. Some people were not at all. Um, but it was actually a really great time. We did a lot of good. We did a lot of good with uh, kids and stuff. What is um, exactly youth ministries? Well, with the Catholic Church down here, back at that time, New Orleans was in the surrounding area was so Catholic, way even more, way more than it is now. It was just like, I mean, it was so Catholic that some of my friends who weren't Catholic would like go to Catholic church for like holidays and stuff. Uh, my friend Kyle, he had just left the seminary because he did come out to them and say he was gay and he was working as a youth minister and I got involved in it. We did all kinds of things. Like one, we had a lot of sports activities for kids and uh, we took them on camping trips. I knew a youth minister here that worked in uh, some of the housing projects and we were actually like taking kids from the North Shore and kids from the housing projects and going on camping trips and trip to Disney World and uh, we did a lot of service projects. Like the kids in our group, they like rebuilt a house for an elderly man and, you know, just did a lot of things to help people. So it was actually it was actually a pretty good time. We can look back on it and feel like we did something good. Yeah, especially right. when you're not ready to come out and you're like, what do I do yeah. with myself? Pouring yourself right. into some good work at least, you know. But some people, when they get involved in a church or something, they become anti-gay when they're not, you know what I mean? And yeah. then they really have caused some destruction. <laughs> And I don't, I don't think we did that at all. No, you and, balanced it. You balanced right. the scales out a little bit. And then, you know, and then I wanted to come out, so I left because, you know, bottom line, you can't do that kind of work really much. 
I guess you could in a Unitarian church. And then I just decided to pack it up. And I could I didn't have much job opportunities really going here either. And I read an article that Boston had like 3% unemployment, which was pretty low compared to most places at that time. The oil boom was crashing here. A lot of people were getting laid off places. I knew somebody who was going to be going up to school in Boston, actually an ex-nun friend. The guy I worked with at night uh, in a hospital, he told me he was moving up there. So I was like, hey, I'll go too. And then I found out there was a third friend there. We just moved up there, and we were like... And how old were you then? Uh, early 20s. Okay. Back then, coming from Louisiana was like coming from another country. Because it was, you know, pre-internet days, so you really didn't have... And you didn't have 250 channels on your TV. So you really were kind of egocentric, you know, about your area. You didn't really know a lot about the other world. Like, Even I, just getting around. Like, now I pull up my cell phone, and I look right. up, like, how, how to get from here to here. It tells me the to train the bus, yeah. how much a lift is. When you're new to a place like that, I right. mean, you have to do that all yourself. It was kind of funny. I found that, interesting enough, the, all the friends we were making in the beginning... A lot of them were foreign people, and I think it was because we ourselves felt a little foreign. And, uh, you know, because we had our own little food. Your own way of talking exactly. and doing things. One of my friends, she happened to live there briefly, and I would catch her carrying around a container of Nest tea in her purse all the time because they would tell us iced tea was seasonal. Oh, and, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and then Peggy would walk around with, like, uh, Tony Satchery's in her purse all the time. And so, um, you know, we would just seek each other out for every kind of holiday and event. I made some amazing friends up there. It's a, it's amazing how people can come together like that, you yeah. know, and actually being somewhere else. Like, I am from California. I lived in New York a few years, and uh, one of the first friends I met was also from California. So we were like, oh, we're both from California. We need to right. hang out immediately. And you just have that bond. And then you can also, be when it gets cold outside, you're like, oh, remember, you know, how hot it used to be yeah. in December? Or you can even share tips like, you know, because we didn't even know, like, how to dress right. It is. You feel like you're in a, another world. We would get high and go sledding late at night places, too, because we didn't grow up sledding. And everyone's you like, know, we've been so doing this for 20 years. Exactly. And like, this is so new and amazing. We were like, little kids, get the hell out of our way. We're going to try this. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I remember watching my first snowstorm. It was uh, 24 inches of snow that fell, and it fell all night, and I watched it till like, 5 in the morning, because to me, that was so amazing and beautiful. Right. It's really cool till two days later when it's a bunch of slush yeah. and brown and gross. Or even and... eight hours later. Right, and they're not necessarily as appreciative of it as you are, because yeah. they've, like, uh, they've seen it a hundred times. One uh, interesting little story, I was working nights still in computers. There was a woman who worked there, and she was like, hey, you know... Uh, because I guess because I was everything I was wearing did, was totally not for winter. Because you know I think I was still wearing harashas, you know, like with socks that would be my winter shoes. She's like, I have some winter clothes of my daughter's I can bring to you, and so she brings me like these shoes and uh, these jeans and like everything's like brand new kind of. And I'm thinking, wow, you know. And and then she tells me her daughter committed suicide. Oh shit! And had lived in a mental hospital for years. <laughs> so that was kind of weird. It was kind of creepy at the same time. I'm telling you, I'm sorry, but I really needed. The clothes some people say they would never do that sorry i had to but she told you after you yeah like yeah accepted the clothes yes so i accepted the clothes she, she knew <laughs> yeah it was a little weird so i don't know it, look in my 20s i probably would have accepted it too. exactly i was I, already working two jobs so this was like bonanza all right so you're in boston you're out to everybody yeah yeah and uh, a couple of the other people that moved up there with me they were not as out till there in fact we started marching in the Pride Parade up there, and I would see people who I'd either been in youth ministry with or who were, like, younger and in youth groups 
when I was involved in youth ministry. So that was kind of funny. And they were either like part of like Dignity, which is this like gay Catholic group, or they were now Episcopalians, or they were now just heathens like myself. When did you uh, like have your first, I guess, relationship? Oh, that was way earlier. Okay. Yeah, before I came out. There was a, a married woman, actually. Uh. Yes. And I'm really good about keeping secrets about that stuff, I have to say. I have to say, I talk a lot sometimes and I joke around a lot, but I think I could take a secret to the grave because that woman actually did pass away some years back, but I I never told anyone. And I think you could get me as drunk as possible, and I will never reveal names. I also slept with a nun before, too, and I never revealed her name, although several people tried to get me. Yeah, I feel like that's the one I would be more interested in trying to get out of you. I was not the first person to do that or the last. So, you know, there were all kinds of relationships, and sometimes I didn't know what was going on. I mean, I moved up to Boston and came out, and then it was like maybe a whole other year or two later when uh, one of my best friends came out to me when we were roommates, uh, there were like three of us as roommates, and I didn't know the whole time. Two of th- those two were like having a relationship right, <laughs> right under my nose, literally, right. And I had no idea because people were just very closeted back then. You had a lot to lose, you know. Being gay was just such a negative thing. I just try to think back. Sometimes there just weren't any real positive role models, and even if someone was a little bit positive, their lives just seemed miserable. And um, I had an aunt who was gay, but I, I didn't really know that for sure growing up. And now I wish I had known more about her. It would have been interesting to know what her life was like. You know, she was always kind of a little bit, I don't know. I wouldn't say she didn't like children, but maybe it was because she was gay. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, well, there's all the societal she, expectations on you to have right, kids and well, to have these traditional, we'll call them traditional relationships, especially, yeah. you know, if it's a great aunt during that time period. In my mind, I thought if you were gay, you just go live in the French Quarter. And then even later when I met more acceptably gay people, I, I don't know, maybe there was just something about it. You know, I think it was just that moment of knowing, like, you're going to have to, like, have this massive change in life. And I guess that's what it is. It's like for gay people it's like it's something so personal but the world is forcing you to go public with it to live your life and i guess when i really when i really came out like to everybody and quit caring anymore i was in uh somerville actually and um i had known people here like i'd had a roommate he was out and gay and bad stuff had happened to him and friends of his and stuff which that's probably also what kept me kind of closeted he knew i was gay i never told anyone but him and like he, we even knew somebody that, I don't know, somebody like tried to set their house on fire and things like that. So I was in Somerville and I was kind of out to some people uh, and not out to others. But I was with a work friend who I was out to and she was kind of out. And we were walking down a street and, you know, not that I should have to say this, but no, we weren't holding hands. We weren't doing anything that would appear as a couple. And... This guy came out of a store, a quick pack store, and he had, like, I think he had, like, a bag of beer or something. He was, like, the size of a linebacker comparison to me. And all I remember him is saying something about, like, these fucking queers or dykes or whatever. And next thing I know, the guy just hit me really as hard as he could and threw me into a window. Oh, shit. And and it was kind of like those cartoon skits where you don't break the glass, you just slide down. Like, I I don't think I weighed enough to crash through the glass. I probably weighed about 115 back then. So I kind of hit the ground, and I remember my friend freaked out because uh, she was afraid I was going to jump up and tell him off because that would have been my nature. But I was smart enough to know I don't want to die today, right? I think it really affected her more than me because after that, I was kind of like, fuck it, let me go get the combat boots and cut my hair shorter. 
Yeah, and, like if this shit's gonna happen anyway, right? I might I get as well beat up anyway. I might way... as well just yeah, be who I want to be. And for her, actually, uh, feel like it took her the other direction. I feel like she became even more guarded and more uh, in the closet about who she was for probably maybe the next ten years. Yeah, I'm so sorry that happened. Yeah, well, and there's many things happened to me like that. Many, many things, and all the way up to just the other day being called Dyke at the gas station. <laughs> but I, I don't think it's that unusual for small gay people. You know, because I had friends who were like six foot four. Nobody ever says anything to them. You yeah. know, and I've had people who are bulkier. But I mean, in my age group. But even in my age group, some people who are bigger got jumped and beaten. Uh, Kyle, who I did the thing with, he had somebody shoot at him in the French Quarter one night. He got jumped by a group of kids with a friend, and they oh, were attacked wow. with a pipe. The problem with gay bashers is like any other haters. They're cowards at heart. And, you know, they always only attack you if they have the advantage. Yeah. But yeah. for someone, you're just walking down the street and some guy feels that it's a necessity to not only exactly. verbally attack you, but physically attack you. Right. I, you know, I can understand. I understand that then there's a t- two perspectives. You and your friend basically had that, de- like, you guys both went totally different directions. Because, yeah. yeah, part of me is that the anger would, would rise up and be like, fuck this. Like, I'm going to just go out and be me and I'm going to be in his face if that's what, you know, exactly. he's so afraid of or whatever he's dealing with. But then the other part of me might just hide in my right, shell. Like, I don't want to die. Right. And be like, I don't want this to happen and I don't want something worse to happen. Yeah. And then you just start to develop, uh, I don't know, I want to say a sense of humor about it, but I guess the oddest thing back then, I never even considered like calling the police. I never even considered saying I was assaulted. Like it was a weird thing because there's something I think in the back of our minds that on some level we deserved it. It wasn't until years later I was talking to somebody who was a therapist and I was talking about something about that and she was like, oh my God, you were assaulted? And it was like, wow, I never thought about that. And then another uh, main event, I used to call it the milk bashing. My roommate and I, we were going out just to get some milk and I remember seeing this group of teenagers, like we were right off the bike path and there's just something said to me like, I don't want to go past them. So we made this whole like roundabout way. But when we were coming back, they had moved. Oh, shit. And um, that was a bad night, too. And they, they like, tried to put a cigarette out on me. And I think we were saved by the fact that the subway let out and a whole bunch of people came up in the subway. And I do remember being so angry the next day that I was going to go look for some of these kids. Like, I was just, I'm going to go look. Especially the girl who was, like, trying to get the guys to put the cigarettes out on me and stuff. I was like, I'm going to find this kid. I don't know what I'm going to do when I find her, but I'm going to find her. <laughs> and I ran into my old roommate and friend, Ken. And uh, he was sitting with this nice woman who was a social worker who was straight and who probably had never had anything like this happen to her. And uh, I took, he's like, what are you, you know, I said, I'm out here trying to find this, this girl, these kids. They, I told him the whole story. And it was so funny because her take on it, she totally missed my whole anger mark. And she said, oh, that is so awesome that you're going to, like, reach out to these kids. <laughs> and like, I, I'm going to reach out, all yeah, right. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, yeah, I'm hoping I can reach out to them in the subway station so I can say, third rail, bitch. Because <laughs> that's like, you get electrocuted for yeah. people that don't know the subway. But fortunately for those kids and for me, I guess, I never found them. So these things happen a lot. Now I'm developing a better sense of humor. A guy years ago told me what he would do when people call him faggot. He's a small guy, and he said I would be like, that's Mr. Faggot to you. And then he said I'd run really fast. <laughs> so recently this happened to me when I got called Dyke. I didn't run, 
but because um, I got back in my car. But I was like, that's Ms. Dyke to you. How'd the yeah. heckler handle it? Because we'll call him a oh, heckler to be nice. Oh, like a thousand more names. Oh. Yeah. But um, sometimes it's good with young people, too. I notice, like, when I've been called Dyke, boys or girls, and I just say that's a good eye because you know what they say it takes one to know one you're very brave for those responses i feel like anytime something's happened i literally just do nothing and then i get upset that i do nothing and the few times i've yelled back it has not been worth it you know to engage in that and i do think sometimes if you don't respond you're not a coward because uh that night what i like call it call the milk bashing because they knocked our groceries out of hands and stuff my uh, roommate at the time said she felt like she did she wish she'd done more and i told her actually i thought it was best she did nothing because i think they would have just taken it out on me more i think you know you got to use your you got to use your sense because you know yeah you're angry but is it it's not worth dying over or being seriously injured right did you go from boston back to new orleans or were there any stops along the way well, I, I lived in Boston for like a year, year and a half, and then I moved to Colorado because I thought that was where I really wanted to be, and I had this whole idea what Colorado would be like, but this was the 80s, and I moved to Colorado, and to be honest with you, I'm sure there'd be a lot of people that would disagree with me unless I found it very redneck. Hell, I could stay in Louisiana for that. And then <laughs> I also like lost everything I owned pretty much at that point, and was kind of just down to my car, and then, well, actually, that started happening in Boston. <laughs> And I was kind of in my car, and then I made it to Colorado, and then when I left there, my car broke down. Oh, no. So then I lost everything. So then uh, I made my way back to Boston, got my job back, and lived with two friends uh, who now live back here in New Orleans as well. And so kind of worked my way back, and then eventually I went to a small college up there. It was kind of like buying swampland in Florida. It was touted as, you know, the program for the working class person. That school, if I could find a way to sue them and get my money back, I would, but I never quite was able to find a loophole. What I did get out of it was several really close friends who I'm still good friends with to this day. But one of the, I guess, ironic things that happened there is the first week I was there, I was in this class, and they put me together with this group of people to do a, a project. They came to my house, and my brother had just died. And uh, I had his leather jacket. People came over. The first person that came in the door was uh, this woman, Claire. She's like, I'm sorry I'm late. I was at my brother Matthew's grave. We were having a little picnic. And she had this really cool leather jacket. And I said, nice jacket. And she said, oh, it belonged to my brother Matthew. And I, I got it. And then this other woman came in, Kathy. And she had a cool leather jacket on. And we commented about it. She goes, oh, it's my brother Mike's. He died uh, year ago or something so then we have what we call the dead sibling society and uh (laughs) the leather jacket requirement exactly exactly so us three and then this other woman drew who thank god didn't become a dead sibling society member until many years later (laughs) anyway we just still to this day are good friends and i did my thesis actually from that school on on how homophobia was like the only prejudice that's kind of it's everywhere, and it's it's the most acceptable hate I found. Because if if you're uh, black and you know you're catching hate from white people and Asian people and Spanish, but you still have your community. And if you're a Christian or a Muslim or or Jew, you have your community. But with being gay, it could go all the way down into your family. So it's like any community you're in can turn on you for that. And that's how we. It's ended also up. harder to find your community. Right, but that's how we end up with a gay community. Like, there never had to have been a gay community, but one had to be formed. That was pretty heavy. Okay. (laughs) Let's talk about (laughs) drinking or something. Boston, Colorado. And then back back to Boston. Back to Boston. 
like 17 years after that. Yeah. Do you think you were going to be there forever? I did. I did. And uh, when my brother died, I knew my days were numbered. I mean, I still stayed on quite a few years after. But uh, when he was alive, he like was like, um, he traveled all over the world for work. And so he was like, oh, I'll live in Slidell and mom and dad can stay with me forever. And you just take them some time in the summer. And then he died and I kind of stood over his grave with a shaking my fist like, you <laughs> son of a bitch. You left them with yeah. me. So don't ever trust that if a sibling tells you that. So I knew at some point I'd have to move back here. And is that what brought you back, or were you just like, I'm done with Boston, or was yeah, there some kind sort of breaking it. point? I broke up with a uh, with my girlfriend who I thought I'd probably spend the rest of my life with, and then I was still there for a while, and I just felt like my parents were aging, my sister was here by herself, so yeah, so I moved back, my timing was poor, Katrina hit less than a year after I got here. Oh, wow. And that really upended my life. Were you living in New Orleans or were you back uh, in Slidell, which is North Shore? No, I was living in New Orleans. In fact, I was living with Kyle, who I'd done ministry work years earlier. He was now separated from his uh, boyfriend. He was single again. I guess that's how I should say it. Single again. (laughs) And uh, I moved in with him. Actually, before Katrina hit, we were going to stay there. As everybody else was packing up and leaving town, Kyle's was like, let's go get the yard all cleaned up so nothing flies, you know. But Kyle was like, you know, like worried about acorns. I'm like, you know, moving large (laughs) objects. And we're cleaning up, and then we go upstairs, and we still had an answer machine. And we have all these messages, and we play them back, and it went kind of like this. It was kind of like, this is your cousin Angie from the parish. Get the fuck out. It's a Category 5. And then it was like, boop. And then it was like, it's your friend Cora. Get the fuck out. We're going to fucking die. you got to fucking leave. And we were still like, nah, we're not going. So y'all stayed? Well, we almost did, except for Kate, my friend Kate, showed up. I hope Kate doesn't mind me saying this. Kate showed up in my house and said, hey, I thought I'd stay with you guys because the floods will be up high. And we were like, but you can't stay here. You just had massive surgery. And you have, like, she had just recovered from cancer. And it's like, you have, like, 50 stitches in you. You can't stay here. And she's like, well, I don't know where to go. So then we decided we would all leave. I had to leave my cats because Kate had these dogs. We couldn't fit them all. But we thought it would be okay. We left my cats tons of food, tons of water. They had this giant house. We left some windows open for air. We figured the worst that happened, we'd be back in like three to four days, right? Yeah, that's what everybody thought. They're like, I brought two changes of clothes. (sighs) And I thought, yeah, we'll just have a nice little weekend in Baton Rouge or Houston or somewhere close and be right back normal. Yeah, exactly. And I think before that, too, wasn't the year before there was a a hurricane that was supposed to hit and it didn't hit? And so everyone had evacuate the other thing people don't realize who haven't been through an evacuation is it's expensive like it's expensive it's difficult it's a lot of you know it's a nightmare and so if you just went through that and it was kind of the boy who cried wolf then i understand why some people were like "Eh, it's not even gonna hit us it's gonna be fine and it would have been except for the levees it actually would have been fine exactly because really katrina damaged other towns and cities more directly yeah, and another thing people don't understand is that you can't always leave until your job lets you leave. So it's not like you can say, oh, there's a hurricane coming Saturday. I'm going to leave on Wednesday or Thursday. So what happens is, as you know, you end up in these like six, seven, eight hour traffic jams to nowhere. Yeah. And I did think for a while there that we were just going to die on the spillway because Kate and I were up there like I think close to six hours just not moving anywhere. 
and you know you see the birds are gone everything's leaving yeah other people around you're getting nervous <laughs> we're thinking we're just gonna be on this bridge like we'll never get off and while a hurricane's coming yeah, your way should have just stayed at home and so um and i had to pee really bad really bad so i remember when we got to the other side there was like this super long line for the bathhouse at this gas station thing and i just remember coming out of there and kate was like i got you an iced tea and i was like i'm not putting any more liquid in this mouth do we get where we're going i briefly was um in baton rouge then i was in houston and then i ended up in dallas for like a night at my cousin's and then friends from new england because uh you couldn't use your cell phone that's something people don't understand like you just couldn't get a call anywhere depending on what service you had and i was able to text a friend in new york and he got me a ticket to Albuquerque and some friends out there gave me a car oh, wow. and then I stayed out there for a few days and then I started driving back that's really cool you have a good network of people yeah exactly and then actually well it's my New England friends which is why that's really my second home and then another friend from New England uh she sent uh said don't go to Red Cross she she wired me $300 for gas and expenses and and I remember like the car still had a cassette player in it it was a Honda Accord and the only tape I had was a Bonnie Raitt tape and of course that tragic song you know I can't make you love me yeah I was gonna yeah. say if you weren't already crying yes yeah, so I got to play that like 600 times I just heard uh, a dance mix of that song recently, like with the you? bass behind, and I still wow. cried. Yeah, it's still it's sad. the saddest song ever, right? So I listened to that a lot. I was going to say two funny things that happened with that, though, is when I did get to that Dallas airport on my way to Albuquerque, I don't know why, but they pulled me out of line and, like, searched me and questioned me. And then at some point, because I had one little tiny bag, like you say, with, like, a swimsuit, two changes of clothes yeah. and some stuff. And at some point, somebody was like, oh, you're from New Orleans. Like, the light bulb went off, right? And then when I get where I'm going in Albuquerque, it's like they didn't put my good underwear back in the bag. I was very upset because, oh. you know, when I evacuated, that is one thing. I grabbed, <laughs> like, all my Calvin Klein underwear, and it was gone. So that was very It's uh, a weird aggravated. thing for them to take. It was. And then uh, maybe they just forgot. And then the other weird, really weird thing that happened is when I was in New Mexico driving down this back road, I had this Spanish station on. And uh, I was like, I think I know this song. And it was funny because they were playing a Cajun song in Spanish. Oh, wow. You know that one on the bayou? Yeah. You're going to have fun on the bayou? Those are just weird memories. No, it's, that's what you know. You remember. That's, yeah. Music yeah. always sticks out to me like for certain time frames in my life. And clearly the, the tape of Bonnie Raitt and you know, that <laughs> song, you're like, all right. <laughs> you know, but that's what you remember. And that's you know, what speaks to you. Right. But you made it back. The cats were okay. Oh, well, Uh-oh. yeah, I shouldn't have asked. No, they were, but like okay. Kyle and I met up along the way at my uh, sister-in-law's. I've been thinking about the cats this whole time. Oh, sorry. Well, we got to my sister-in-law's house in Mandeville. Uh, so the next morning we decided we're going to sneak into New Orleans like everyone else. And it was very aggravating because, um, yes, they did already have like thousands of workers in the city, but they weren't letting us in, you know, yeah. to get to our own things. Other people I knew were lying, like they were pulling out contractor papers. One friend bought a magnet for the side of her truck that said some sort of restoration thing and drove in. People get creative, Exactly. Huh? But I'm with Kyle, you know, former almost priest. So, of course, he keeps telling them the truth. Oh, we're going to get the cats. And they're, every time they're like, no, sorry, can't let you in. And finally, I'm just like screaming at him like it was like we were married or something. <laughs> I just scream. I'm like, if you can't fucking lie, get in the passenger seat because <laughs> I can't take this shit anymore. Yeah. 
So he finally uh, lies to them by showing them this, I don't know, some sort of lawsuit he was in the middle of with his car, and he's he's a, he was a professor at UNO, so it's a doctor. Uh. And so the guy goes, you're a doctor? You know, this, like, I don't know, 19-year-old soldier or something. And Kyle said, yes. And he was like, go on through. So technically true, so he wasn't totally exactly. lying, so he felt okay with and that. fortunately, they didn't say, can you help us with this dying man over here? So we got in, and uh, we get to our house and on the way there we see a helicopter crashed on the bayou i got a picture of that and then we get to the house and uh we find my big cat my other cat Tallulah. sadly uh she lived so you quit worrying but (laughs) what had happened to us was while you see images on the news and stuff of people looting houses i don't know how to explain it we were more like screwed over by people some people we knew in the neighborhood where renters got flooded, they contacted us, can we stay at your house? We told them yes, we told them where the spare key was. They kind of fucking had a party at our house. And they were going around taking things from other places and dragging them up to our third floor. Oh, lovely. And then some people even told me about rescue workers uh, being in our house, like urinating our sink and like blowing pot smoke in my cat's face and firing a gun off the porch and laughing because, like, we're never coming back. And they really just trashed our place. It was very depressing for Kyle. I took a long time to get over it because that was his home. But uh, we did get both the cats. I would say Tallulah came out because you're Kyle's voice. I think she always liked men better. And uh, she did almost die, but I, I, I brought her to this vet in Metairie who was, these these women were working 24-7 to rescue every animal they could. And you had to kind of assist. So when I wasn't gutting my parents' house, I was over there helping tube feed her or whatever. So, but there were some really funny things that happened. I just like, yeah, yeah you're talking about all this and you're looking for the funny stories. Yeah, well, and you just That's have what you to. you do, right? yeah. You have to. And there were funny things. Like one, one story we had gotten to houses, two of my cousins were there linda and marie at the time and linda was a minister's wife so we're just in complete devastation i mean if you want to think about it you can't hear a bird there's no sounds of animals there's only flies everywhere and everything stinks like rotten potatoes and uh the red cross truck pulls up and they're like the best people in the world to see because they're just trying to like cheer you up and everything i go get the boxes of food so my cousin drags this broken table way off in a corner so we can like sit down and eat like i don't know like civilized people, <laughs> which we hardly were at this point, and to get away from the flies. And when we open our box, it's like you can't even identify, you know, three of the four things. Oh. And so I start eating the pudding, and my cousin seriously just said, I can't believe you're going to eat your dessert first. Her sister and I just looked at her like, <laughs> wow, we can't believe you just said that. Yeah. <laughs> like, look where you are. Yeah, like this is not the thing. You're you're a survivor in a lot of ways. Yeah, so I know you might not identify that way, but sadly, I think right now with Trump in office, we are all survivors. <laughs> We're making it through. We're either survivors or experiencing Stockholm syndrome. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the only explanation I have for that, for sure. So, what got you into storytelling? I don't know when it happened, but I was I was dating um, someone. She and she introduced me to the moth. She asked me to go one night, and then uh, we were there, and they didn't have enough people. She said, you should just put your name in. And I'm like, I don't even know how you do this or whatever. She's like, you'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> just go. And I'm like, but what? And she goes, if you embarrass yourself, I'll still walk out with you. You know, like, I won't. So, yeah, like, there'll be, one, on. there'll be one person here who won't, like, laugh at you and look down on you for making a fool of yourself. 
I told this story about my moving back here and uh, meeting Melanie. Uh, she was dressed as an Ellis impersonator oh, nice. at the Rock and Bowl. So I just did it off the cuff, and it worked. And uh, I'd always wanted to do stand-up comedy. And so then I found, like, doing storytelling was kind of like doing stand-up. Then I did the moth once or twice more, and then they asked me to be in the um, Grand Slam. Yeah, which is a really big deal. Yeah, and I've been in it twice. And I think the first time, I don't brag, but I think maybe that's the time I should have won. <laughs> I felt like I was really perfect on that story. The second time, not so much. It is fun. You're allowed to brag, and you're allowed to be honest when you nail it. Yeah, the funny thing, though, about the whole storytelling thing, and, I mean, you probably even know this being in comedy, is, like, how competitive some people are, and then other people aren't. But I guess the crazy thing about the competitiveness and the storytelling is you're absolutely not going to win anything. And it really isn't a career move, uh, even <laughs> less so than stand-up comedy, right? Yeah, yeah so, there's no Netflix specials for storytelling. Exactly, exactly. Yet. And you, yeah, <laughs> and I mean, with The Moth, even, you're going to get maybe two, maybe 20 seconds to, to a minute and a half of fame when they announce your name. And in my case, they generally announce my name wrong. So I figure I'm not even going to get that. But I will say that, it doesn't bother me if I win or lose at that. But I, I have met people that, yeah, it's like they're going to have a meltdown over because people didn't like their story enough or whatever. Yeah, and it actually affects their everyday. I mean, that's what I you know I tell people with stand-up. With stand-up, there can be some competition and there can be some jealousy and bitterness. And, you know, it is hard to not totally fall into that. But when you let that go and when you're generally around people that aren't doing that, you're, number one, your art gets better. And number right. two, you don't waste time in that and with that negative energy. And I think, too, when you're doing stand-up, you can't get angry at the audience. No, I've you're seen people please do don't. that before. Please don't get angry at the audience. Right. I've it's... seen people be like, you know, the audience sucks. And it's like, maybe it's you. Sometimes it's just you can't, the audience can't relate to you. Um, a lot of times when I do open mic, I'm clearly by maybe 15 years the oldest person in the room, desperately hoping maybe somebody brought their parents that night. <laughs> uh, and so I might have to change whatever I was going to do or rework it because I realize I'm, I'll start realizing my references are just not going to fly. I'm 34 and my references sometimes miss the mark, right. you know, with the the younger generation or even the older generation. So it's good yeah. that you can say that and, and not say, no, my joke is funny and any audience should get this. They're not going to and then you can't blame them because you have this relationship with them that you need to establish. But yeah, I've seen comedians yeah. get up there and tell a joke that they're like, that's funny. You don't know what's funny. And they'll actually say that to the exactly. audience. Exactly. And guess like, what? Even if uh, your next three jokes were the funniest thing that, you know, this audience has you. ever heard, they're, they're not going to laugh. Exactly. Yeah. And they kind of hate you. And then sometimes, you know, it's just, they can't relate to you. When I got to go up and do comedy this past year for the mayor of Cambridge, a uh, party for her, Denise Simmons, my biggest concern was that people up there are so much more politically correct than we are. You know, they have that little dark sense of humor, and you can make those maybe not so politically correct jokes. So I I was kind of worried about that, and I think it did hinder what what I did that day. Like, I know people liked it, and it went over well, but I think it would have gone over great if I had not been so worried about it. Yeah, but, I remember you talking to me about it. You, I mean, yeah. you were definitely a little in your head, but I'm also like, this is the mayor. That's, right. you know, it's a different situation than an open mic at a bar. That's for, yeah. like, this is, you're presenting to a mayor and at, you know, a very important dinner. So right. there is that consideration. I think another thing with stand-up, you know, in New Orleans, everything falls second to music. It is hard to get people to come out. 
So I think comedians have to work harder here. Well, it's harder too because you can go to a music show, you can still talk to your friends, you can come in and out, and it's not considered, you know, rude or disruptive. But with stand up, it's different. Number one, we rely on the audience uh, to be listening. Can't really talk too much during somebody's set because they're going to hear it or it's going to interfere with the set. And you can't just get up and and go in and out because it's a quieter environment. Sometimes you can hear it. Sometimes the door is next to the stage. Sometimes you know your your phone goes off. Like there's different things that can happen that can actually affect the show whereas most you know music performances the music will just keep going right and so there's not that same attention span that's required right so i think that that's an issue and i know for me too uh sometimes i write i like to keep things current but the problem with keeping things too current is you just can't repeat them very much well i think too because you get so fired up you know especially since uh trump's been elected and certain things have (laughs) happened that that's what fires you up and that's where your passion is and i and i see that on stage but i also understand like i had a couple jokes about trump running for president when he was first announced he was running because that was a joke to it was a joke at that time to me it was funny that this guy who's a television star essentially you know as a failed businessman as far as i'm concerned is now running for president and is running very seriously running then he became the republican nominee which i also thought was ridiculous and i was making jokes about it and then he became president right, so right it's like who believed it was going to happen and then they're not funny <laughs> anymore and i can't use them <laughs> right cuz they're almost um, sad yeah, yeah yeah and then i look yeah. i look like the idiot cuz like i'm making fun of something that actually happened and then some jokes uh were maybe too soon i remember doing a joke right like probably within the first 2 weeks after he won i remember like telling this joke to several people i knew and they just thought it was hysterical and at work and stuff. And then I go to this bar that night and most of the people were very young. And I told this joke about how I was desperately looking for a new job. And with Trump in office, somebody suggested I go through and um, apply for a cabinet position, uh, you know, because there were so many openings. And so <laughs> I went through and I saw that there was an opening for the Department of Diversity. And I was like, I can do this. I'm gay and I've always wanted to do diversity training and I'm a woman. And so I get an interview and I go where they go for job interviews now for the White House. I go to Trump Towers in New York. And I, when I get there, I go in the room and my competition is there. And it's uh, Kanye West and Caitlyn Jenner and Bill Cosby. And um, I knew Kanye. I could beat him because you can only have one megalomaniac in office at a time. I knew I could beat Caitlyn Jenner because it's the one pussy he won't grab. And I knew that I could not beat Bill Cosby, though, because he would be a hell of a wingman. <laughs> <laughs> now, I told that joke one night at a bar, and some 20, I'm just going to call them 20-somethings, which is really unfair. I'm going to label this small group of people, really got upset with me for um, attacking Kanye and Caitlyn Jenner. Oh, okay. And I was I thought you were going to say the reverse, to be I, quite honest. Exactly. And I was just kind of blown away, and they were just like, you know, and finally I just like, um, you know, afterwards I just said to them, um, did you remember Caitlyn is a Republican? Yeah, I was like, I don't think that would have stopped me from because I would be like, yeah. no, Kanye is a megalomaniac. Yeah. That's for sure. You know, I would, I would, yeah. I would stand behind that. <laughs> and then oddly, I told a joke somewhere else, and a couple people actually thought that I really did get an interview. That was kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> they thought that part was not made up, and I was like, wow, that's because okay. you're a good storyteller. It sounds yeah. like the new uh, a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar. Exactly, <laughs> <kind of> <laughs> <joke>. <laughs> it's like the updated version of that. I may. It may get down to that, you know. I may still have to apply for a job in his uh, 
Like, you know, there's still openings. Yeah, and I don't think Melania is in charge of diversity training. No, I don't think she wants to be in charge of anything. I don't think so either. I don't blame her. She really I was just thinking there's this. there's nobody who's been less interested in, in such a high-powered job. And I, I guess I'll call it a job because being first lady is a job. Yeah. There's nobody in the world that's like less interested in that than she is. She didn't even want to live there. She doesn't want to wear those dresses that they keep making her wear. She just wanted to live her, her, her life. life that she thought she'd set up for herself. And yeah. I think Baron too. I think he just liked to lay low. And that's yeah. always, always hard with him and even with, yeah. you know, the Obama's kids. It's just let them, be, even Chelsea Clinton, like yeah. people were, she was like 12 years old when Bill Clinton first uh, got to the White exactly. House and they're making fun of the way a 12-year-old dresses. It's like, yeah. these are the most awkward years Rush of Limbaugh your life. the worst on that. You're already going through so much and you're in public and you don't understand what's going on and then people are going to pick at your outfits. Exactly. I do think you have to draw your jokes at a line when it comes to children. Yeah. Like that. You know, I do think people are too politically correct. It's about overt political correctness mm. to a point where it gets too far. And I've also, I don't know about you, but I try to address that sometimes and be sensitive to both sides. But it's kind of like when you come from my generation and people get angry because you don't identify them with the right pronouns. And for us, you know, I am going to admit, we chuckle a little bit on that. It's not to be mean. It's just we come from a place that it's so hard to understand that. And especially when it gets to they and them, because it's a plural but I realized one time it was deeper than when it's a plural. It hit me one day that for my generation and up, and maybe even some people in your generation or people that live in smaller towns and whatever, you always know who the gay person is at work because they always refer to their significant other as they and them because they would avoid the same-sex sort of, pronoun. Yeah. And so I realized that's possibly like subconsciously a lot of our dislike for having to, when somebody says i want to identify as they or them because we're thinking we just finally got through with that yeah like, i like, just quit doing that shit you're the one that actually brought this to my attention but you know i host a show called greetings from queer mountain this is a podcast near and queer to my heart and for me and for a lot of lgbt folks queer is is an umbrella term that we use and that we embrace and uh, you've said that there's a few, you know, older folks that you've talked yeah. to that because of the the negative connotations of queer from when they grew up and their experiences that they actually don't want to be associated with they that word. They won't come to your show because of that. Yeah. I mean, I'm working on a few, but it's true because for them, queer would be like the N-word to a black person. I mean, if you want to put it that way. That's to that extreme for them because I think especially if you grew up in the 40s, 50s, even the 60s, Queer was definitely a negative word. It was definitely used against you to make you feel as worse as it possibly could. You know, I try to explain to them the whole point about embracing yeah. the word, but there are still a few friends. They just can't wrap their heads and around I, it. And I get that. Even when I was young, we used to say, oh, that's gay. And that meant it was uh, right. like, stupid or lame. It didn't mean, oh, that's, you know, happy and yeah. and wonderful. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, I've been able to reclaim that word for myself. But I think the word queer goes deeper for some other folks. And they're not able to reclaim that. And it's hard, you know, running a show because you get back into Alphabet City with LGBTQA. Right. However, and you she know. She was a good word for it. Yeah. And, you and, know, the same thing with Dyke, actually. You know, a lot of people joke around, oh, baby dykes and this dyke and that dyke. And it doesn't really affect me. I don't, you know, except when people use it against me. But I also have friends that have a really hard time when they even hear me say or make jokes. Uh, you know, usually people older than me. Yeah, I know. Because for me, that. I personally don't identify as a dyke, but I know people who do identify as dyke. I identify as lesbian. And I know people who... Uh, you know, are females who date females and do not identify as lesbian. And they don't yeah. like that term. And it's, it could be because of some experiences they've had or they just don't see that term as themselves. And that's fine. 
Um, but everybody's different. And so it's hard to, to find that balance when you're doing stand up or storytelling or ho- trying to host a show because uh, they to don't figure that out. see lesbian as goddess like women from the Isle of Lesbo like you do. Yes, and of course. So that is why they <laughs> that don't is identify I, as that. That is absolutely how I see myself. <laughs> <laughs> that is why. And that's what's happened to us too. So now we went from that to, I don't know, hard workers. But, you know, I was just thinking recently with all this um, sex scandal stuff and just women being, you know, I'm kind of loving how angry women are. Even my 88-year-old mother recently went on a road trip and she even just decided to start telling me about every person who ever wronged her, you know, man that she was angry with. And then I have this uncle who's sleazebag and we, everybody in the family, you know, has been mad at him at some point for acting like Harvey Weinstein. So I do like that all women are angry about it, but something I was thinking about recently because I work downtown as a public safety ranger, and I just think, like, I must hear the word bitch. Sometimes I feel like I hear it every three minutes for 12 hours. Like, I just feel like somebody's either on the phone saying, bitch, let me tell you, or calling somebody a bitch, or, you know, just bitch, 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 and just angry use of it towards women in every way which she's a, you know from the businessman who comes out of the office well that bitch you know said in the meeting you know you overhear yeah. this to like the guy who like i don't know some badass dude who's like you know bitch i'm gonna fuck you up to the homeless people talking about that bitch under the bridge you know yeah and i just think like i'm starting to think maybe as women we need to claim that word and start insisting that men don't get to use it anymore yeah, no, that that'd be <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That'd be that... great, but we're still we're we're still making the steps of first yeah, everybody, you I'm know, jumping ahead of myself. Yeah, yeah, but, I know you want but... you want that to to happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm so... like, we're we're getting there, and society exactly. as a whole, you know, I feel is is progressing in that direction. Yeah, and then uh, I... which is great. Exactly, and then sometimes I find I use it myself, you know, joking around and stuff. So I don't know. I think the great thing about comedy is to really make people laugh at all the bad things yeah and make you. them think yeah exactly you have a few jokes that i feel like they make people think yeah and i've seen the audience reaction where i'm like they're thinking about this and that's true and i really don't like to go out and do stuff unless i can come up with something that makes people think like i uh, i could talk about my silly dog all the time and probably get some laughs but sometimes i want people to think more yeah, because those are like cute jokes. Exactly. Like hard hitting. Exactly. Everybody loves the dog. Oh, yeah. Dogs are easy sell. You know, I have a few cat jokes I tell. Yeah. That, you know, they're just, they make people comfortable. Exactly. And sometimes you do that first to make them comfortable and then, you know, right. get into what you need to. And then go for the kill. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Disarm them. Yeah. Well, Alita, thank you so much uh, for talking with me today and for being part of this podcast. All right. Well, thank you, Amanda. And thanks for having uh, Queer Mountain and getting so many of us uh, off the sofa and on the stage. That's my dream. (laughs) (laughs) Except the sofa is where the cats are. There's good vices and there are bad vices. And I think we all know the bad vices, smoking, drinking, uh, fighting, I don't know, all of them. I got through all of them before my mid-twenties, and, uh, but there was just one vice I couldn't, couldn't let go of, and it's a vice that's clearly uh, created out of a poor education and excessive reading of comic books. <laughs> it's a vice so bad that um, it will lead you down a path of destruction that will break your heart, your soul, your body, and probably your bank account. 
if this vice had a 12-step program and we were there right now and I was on the mic, it would go like this. I would say, hi, I'm Lee and I'm a helper. <laughs> It started at a young age. I blame my parents for not having a television. Uh, I'm reading too many comic books. I wanted to be a superhero. I'm sure that's where it developed. And I kept helping and helping. And it stayed with me throughout the years, even evident in the past, I don't know, decade or so in my Mardi Gras costumes. And uh, there's was my favorite, the Peace Ranger, that also... <laughs> appeared at several anti-war marches, which I'm sure some of you younger people are going, which war? <laughs> well, <laughs> not that old. The war we're currently in, but we pretend we're not. <laughs> and then there was the other costume, one of my favorites. Jess, you like this one? Elliterate. <laughs> Defender of the illiterates of New Orleans. <laughs> I love that costume, but the peripheral vision is dangerous. People thought I was drunk a lot. Um, so it just kept going, and I kept trying to help and help and help, and it just never ended. And then I did start to see, as I got a little bit older, the destruction that it causes. And uh, I did save my younger cousins under the guise of a Christmas party. I had them over. I had some other helper-addicted friends, and after quite a few drinks, we got right up close on them, and we said, listen, pay attention. It's Christmas. Learn from us. Save yourselves first. Sell out young, and save the world when you're older. <laughs> we beat this over their heads as much as we could, and I think it worked because one of them dropped out of becoming a youth minister and went on to become a bartender extraordinaire, a fantastic liquor salesman, and married well, if you know what I mean. <laughs> he now vacations places I can only dream of. And I'm hoping he'll remember me when I'm older and get me off the park bench. So, uh, so yes, the helping thing can be a problem, and I'm hoping that younger people could learn from me and other helpers. You know, if you don't believe me, the next time somebody in your family at a party starts going off about the 60s or whatever and how they saved the world and changed things and did all these wonderful things, just remind them of the election in November. <laughs> and I think you could see that they will probably kind of wish they had saved themselves first. So um, all this has led me to uh, a series of careers in helping, even when they didn't seem very helpful, they were still helpful. And uh, I, you would think that Katrina would have knocked that helper crap out of me, but it did not. And uh, most recently, I now, I'm at that age where it really became evident that helping was probably not the best lifelong career plan. Because you'll know when you've turned a corner in life, and that is when people start saying things to you like, wow, you've really been good at it. You know, you could have been great. 
they talk about you like you're almost dead. Because when you're younger, they'll say, you could be, or you should be. But when you turn a certain corner, they'll talk about it in the past. So, that whole saying, it's never too late, that's bullshit. Okay? So be careful of that. So I recently, uh, uh, I started my own business some years ago, actually, not recently. And um, I guess I thought I sh should have a helping business, but one that people actually pay me for. And, um, of course, I had to have, like, a comic book kind of superhero attire. And uh, I named it Go-Go Girls, which seems superheroish to me, but being that it's New Orleans, I get calls for other things. <laughs> and, uh, I'm sure if we had FaceTime, those people would be disappointed. They would be thinking of a Beyonce-type look-alike on a pole, and instead they got Ellen. <laughs> I, uh, I, I needed more because, um, because uh, I couldn't get health insurance. Uh, being self-employed, health insurance was killing me. And the government uh, just insisted on spelling my name wrong repeatedly. Because Lee's really just my nickname. And um, you know when you've spelled your name correctly to 265 people and they still send your insurance card with the wrong name, you finally just give up and you say, I'll go find a job with insurance. So I found a job, and ironically, it's one where I help people. And uh, seems like everybody I've known for many years who live all over the country all said the same thing. Wow, this is a great job for you. This is like the job you were born to do. This is like everything in your life rolled into one. And on the one hand, that's a compliment. Especially if you happen to be my boss. Let's hope he's not here. He was here last month. And, uh, but on the other hand, it's kind of like saying, don't aspire any higher. <laughs> don't strive for greatness. Because you're a little past that. Let's be thankful. So uh, I am now a public safety ranger. Ranger Lee. <laughs> and um, I think there's another superhero in our midst who I met today, Katie. This is a little off track for my story. But uh, Katie here is a real life superhero at a young age, and I'm hoping she's heeded my warnings tonight about helping others. I, uh, today, as Ranger Lee, I got to go on a homeless outreach with Katie and talk to homeless people all day. And if you ever think you have a problem, ever, just go on a walk with Katie, and you'll probably realize really quickly you don't really have any real problems. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, um, I really didn't, I wanted to wrap this up nicer, <laughs> because I spotted Katie over there. <laughs> so, so anyway, if you see me out, public safety, Ranger Lee, I'll probably be on a bicycle whisking around downtown, or I might be with Katie doing homeless outreach. So I've obtained pseudo-status of superhero late in life, and I just want to say to all of you, remember the mantra, save yourselves now, save the world later. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to our sponsor, The Real Gay Housewives. 
Love the Real Housewives shows but getting tired of the same drama? Well, have we the show for you. The Real Gay Housewives. Their drama cannot be beat. They've all dated each other, so the confessionals are extra steamy. And there's only one lesbian bar in town, so they always run into each other at the most dramatic times. Which sperm donor will Melissa and Helen choose? Who gets the cat after Rosie and Rosie break up? Who will get the best booth at the farmer's market? Tune in to see the hot mess Beaver Express unfold before your very eyes. The Real Gay Housewives. We'd like to thank our sponsor. We'd like to also thank our guest, Alita Glass, for sharing her world with you. And a special thanks goes out to Jessa Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help editing and producing the show. Thanks to all our friends and supporters. You can catch Greetings from Queer Mountain live in New Orleans, Austin, and New York City. Check out our Facebook page for more information. Bye! A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.